What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and today we have two stories about how new governments are changing the financial markets. For our first story, we discuss how the finalization of Brexit is affecting the airline industry, and then we talk about how the outgoing Trump administration tried to get banks to stop considering ESG in their lending practices. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The EU and the UK have completed their separation agreement. Though the UK formally left the EU on January 1st, 2020, Britain was operating for 11 months under EU rules while negotiators were trying to settle terms for intra-country commerce. Those terms have been settled, and we are already seeing the effects on the airline industry. One of the more interesting reactions to Brexit that we have seen is from Irish budget airline Ryanair. Ryanair canceled the voting rights of all shareholders from outside the European Union in December of 2020. Why did it do this? Well, because it has a lot of international investors, and many countries impose what's called foreign ownership rules on the airline industry. So essentially for um, an EU airline to keep their license, uh, what they need to do um, is they need to be majority owned and effectively controlled by EU nationals. That's my colleague Florian Summer who covers Ryanair for us, and I called him up to kind of get a sense of what this all meant for Ryanair and for the airline industry at large. Um, So what that means is that EU nationals essentially have to own a majority of the capital, um, voting rights, and you know also have to have an important position on the company's board. So these sort of foreign ownership rules also play out in the U.S. airline industry and also the Chinese airline industry. And basically what it says is that you have to have 50% of your shareholders in the EU or we're going to revoke your license. And when Brexit happened... Well, that meant that the Irish airline had all of a sudden a lot of UK shareholders that pushed its EU membership down below that level. And so for a bunch of airlines, this happened. And what Florian told me is they had to decide what they were going to do in order to keep their license to operate active in the EU. And for Ryanair, it decided to make some serious moves against its non-EU shareholders. So essentially what they did um, to safeguard their license is to um, cancel the voting rights of all non-EU shareholders, um, including uh, UK shareholders. Now, canceling voting rights is a pretty big disenfranchised move for companies to take against investors. And for large-scale infrastructure companies that have a direct effect on many individuals' lives, such as airlines, voting rights allow company shareholders to have a say in how that influential company is run. And now non-EU shareholders are no longer part of that process. If you're if you're a US investor, you, if you're a UK investor and you own shares in Ryanair, you no longer get to vote, right? So um, you, you, you no longer get to vote on, um, you know, everything that the company puts forward as a proposition at the at the AGM. You don't even get to attend the AGM anymore or ask questions. So it's really sort of um, a reduction in your rights. AGMs are annual general meetings where shareholders gather to hear and discuss with the company's board of directors about how the company that they own is run. Now, Ryanair didn't remove the economic rights of the shareholders. They 
those shareholders still get the dividends and other income for holding Ryanair stock. But what this removal of voting rights does is it gives the owners of the company a lot more power. Think of Zuckerberg and Facebook. Shareholders currently want Zuckerberg to step down and for new leadership to take over. But Zuckerberg has a majority of the voting rights, so he gets to stay. The same sort of thing is now going to happen at Ryanair. Ryanair is led by um, an Irish uh, CEO. He's very long tenured, uh, Michael O'Leary. Um, he's been there since the 90s. He's built up the company. Um, he's very outspoken. He's on TV a lot. Um, and um, he's also um, an important shareholder at the company. Um, so he has about 4%, slightly less of, of the capital. Um, and because he's Irish, so an EU national, he still gets to vote uh, his shares. Um, so that's important because, um, relatively speaking, that means the changes actually increase his weight in the decision-making process of the company, right? And that's especially important because the company overall has uh, what we call a dispersed ownership. Um, so there's no single shareholder or group of shareholders that has at least 10% of the voting rights. So if you're the CEO and you have 4% and nobody else has at least 10%, um, that's a pretty powerful position. This is kind of a wonky story, but all this is compounded by the fact that Ryanair doesn't currently have an independent majority on their board to protect shareholder interests and provide a constructive challenge to the powerful chief executive. So to put this in kind of realer terms, let's say the CEO says Ryanair is no longer going to try and push for more environmentally friendly sources of fuel for its airplanes. If there was an independent board or at least a good set of shareholders that wanted Ryanair to prepare for a more sustainable future and limit carbon emissions and avoid EU fines, they could challenge the CEO. With this move, as it stands, they cannot do that. And we're only in the first month of the finalization of Brexit, so it's going to be interesting to see what more changes are to come. On January 14th, six days before the new Biden administration took over the U.S. presidency, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or the OCC, released a rule that effectively prohibited banks with over $100 billion USD in assets from denying services to whole categories or classes of customers without showing the person or business failed to meet, quote, quantitative, impartial, risk-based standards established by the bank in advance. So, that sounds pretty good, right? In fact, in the press release, the OCC stated that the rule uses language that was included in Title III of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010, which tried to prevent a repeat of the dangerous and discriminatory lending practices by banks that led to the great financial crisis in 2008. That also sounds pretty good. But if you look at the details of the act, you see that it was created in response to Operation Choke Point, an Obama-era rule that the OCC claims pressured banks to cut off access to financial services to disfavored but not unlawful sectors of the economy. So what the OCC said is banks shouldn't be able to do this. Banks should have to give loans to whoever asked for them as long as that bank has done the proper financial due diligence. And what the OCC did is it cited this letter that was sent by the Alaska congressional delegation that discussed decisions by several of the nation's largest banks to stop lending to new oil and gas projects in the Arctic. We actually talked about that failed sale in the Arctic on last week's show. So check that out if you're curious about more details. But it's not just the Arctic drilling 
something that has the OCC wary. It's the general shift in priority by big banks. For example, Morgan Stanley, Citibank, Bank of America, and TD have joined what's called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, a consortium that intends to standardize the way banks measure and reduce their climate impact. JP Morgan last month aligned itself with the Paris Climate Agreement, pledging to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Goldman Sachs also last year launched a ambitious 10-year plan targeting climate transition and inclusive growth finance, basically green growth finance by their terms. And so this shift to using ESG factors in loan portfolios for banks has um, the conservative-run OCC spooked and they issued this ruling that has come under a lot of criticism and has a lot of discussion in the market. And as Yakub Malik, a colleague of mine who has written extensively on the banking industry, told me, this sort of situation, this decision to use ESG in their loan portfolios is not some sort of plot by banks against fossil fuels. It's due to a concern in the industry about the long-term viability of the fossil fuel industry and other industries that have you know, harmful environmental issues, social issues, or governance issues. So one kind of, kind of you know, dimension of this is definitely that uh, some, at least some of the banks are realizing that you know, some of the industries or some companies are just, you know, their business is not viable in the longer run, you know, if we see the trends as we do, you know, with the climate change and I don't know, just this entire uh, movement towards a greener economy, right? So they know that, uh, you know, like, uh, let's imagine that in a uh, in an ideal scenario, you know, like uh, let's let's say in one year time from now, we don't need fossil fossil fuels anymore, right? Everything you know is working on renewable energy and and so on. So obviously, the companies involved in these lines of business, uh, you know, wouldn't have reason to exist anymore, you know. So this is definitely not going to happen uh, in one year. But the banks are seeing that that in in the horizon of of several years, several decades, uh, this is going to happen. So so they want to minimize the risk from you know being involved uh, with companies or industries that will suffer you know from from these changes. And basically, what the OCC said is it said that this is an overreach by banks. In the Federal Register document, the OCC wrote that neither the OCC nor banks are well equipped to balance risks unrelated to financial exposures and the operations required to deliver financial services. Basically, the OCC is telling banks to stay in their lane. They should not look at things like climate change. They should leave that to the scientists when deciding whether or not to loan a lot of money to a big Arctic drilling company. The OCC also added in to this rule that banks should not be using reputational risks to justify exclusionary lending practices. So oftentimes, uh, even though uh, some of these projects, you know, potentially environmentally damaging ones, uh, they could be good business from the financial perspective. You know, you know, if the if the company operating this, you know, is is a very stable, very um, very good company why not but but they are realizing that there is a big toll you know coming from that you know they are often mentioned in media in very negative connotations and so on and of course their investors don't like it you know usually their their share price also reacts to these negative news and so on this is actually where there is a bit more nuance in this ruling when when discussing industries of concern the OCC mostly concentrated on the energy and gun sector, and that's led some of the media to call it the gun makers and oil drillers rule. But the OCC does mention that there have been calls for boycotts of banks 
that support certain healthcare and social service providers, including family planning organizations. And, and some banks have reportedly denied financial services to customers in these industries. And so while it's difficult for me to read an organization that was run by the Republican Party, uh, worry about the problem to healthcare services because they've spent a lot of effort to try to defund those same healthcare services they're now attempting to protect. The concern that they noted isn't entirely unfounded. Uh, I guess we can, you know, climate change, that, that is not a value, right? This, this is a scientific thing, you know, like uh, you can disagree with it. If you are a scientist and you have, you know, some proof that, <laughs> that it is not happening, but, but it's not about your values, you know, you cannot believe or not believe in climate change based on your, your gut feeling. Uh, but if we are talking about, for example, things like these, you know, like uh, contraceptives, you know, Planned Parenthood and, and stuff like that, uh, you definitely do have uh, people, it's actually a sizable proportion of the population, uh, you know, which, which disagrees with this or it's against their values. You know, they have more conservative views on, on everything. So perhaps they or, you know, if, if these are investors or even people inside of the bank, uh, based on their values, they would maybe like to deny services to these types of companies, right? In the end, Jakub thinks this rule might backfire on the OCC. It's possible that because of this attempt to say that ESG and environmental social governance considerations need to be better laid out in the future in order for banks to actually act upon them for future loans and things like that, it may cause banks to better codify ESG considerations into their financial models and avoid any concern that they are taking steps outside of their remit. The the, the second point is, you know, um, I, I think in the legislation it also says that uh, these criteria should be established by the banks in advance, right? So so not to not to decide this ad hoc, but they, they need to have these in place already, you know. Uh, well, I, again, you know, if we want to see the the potential positive from this, you know, for ESG. Many banks uh, already, you know, they, in, they do incorporate ESG in their lending process. Uh, they do incorporate different environmental and, and climate change considerations, uh, you know, which, which often um, includes, you know, excluding entire sectors, you know, like we see it, for example, with oil sands, with, with thermal coal, you know, it can be nuclear weapons and, and so on, you know. So, so this is already what many banks are doing and they have policies on this already. So what, what the legislation like this, you know, could bring, you know, whether it is happening in the US or anywhere else in the world, it could even, you know, like entice the banks to formalize these policies more, you know, or improve them, you know, to really have this set in stone that we just don't lend to these companies because we don't see this sector as, as viable in the longer run. Uh, or, you know, like, okay, we can't perhaps lend to, to a company in, a, in an industry like this, but it needs to meet, you know, this and this and this criteria. Let's say, you know, have exact formulated plans on how to maybe decrease their exposure to these, uh, you know, to these sources of revenues. So, so I think it could in the end help banks kind of really formalize these this ESG, um, you know, considerations in, their, in the way they do their business. Ultimately, the rule may be revoked. It was put into place quickly and it was done in a manner that allows for easy legal challenges. For example, the OCC is legally required to consider all public comments made about a rule before its finalization. The rule was proposed on November 23rd. By January 4th, the OCC had received 35,000 public comments. January 4th was the deadline for those comments to be received. Eight days later, the OCC has finalized the rule. But we wanted to talk about it because it is a good example of how 
ESG considerations are being challenged more in the market and how they're being adapted more by, let's call them more mainstream organizations. And we're likely going to see this going forward and it's something that we want to keep an eye on and want to make sure you, our listeners, also understand and can be abreast of. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Florian and Yakub for talking to me about this week's news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It always helps and subscribe as well wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.